Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. going to read now uh, a story about the temptation of Jesus <coughs> as we come to the last part of the Lord's Prayer. It's from Matthew chapter 4, reading from verse 1. <coughs> it's Matthew chapter 4, so it's very early in the story of Jesus. It comes after he was baptised. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and uh, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, "Do do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came down and attended him. Thanks, Ross. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. If we haven't met before, and I'm looking forward to finishing this series. It's been a good one and a good journey for us Let's pray one more time and then we'll hook into this passage though. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you so much that we can spend this time gathered together today and that we get the immense privilege to open up the Word of God. We pray, Lord, that you by your Spirit would speak to us now, that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. And we pray, Lord, that you would transform us today. We pray, Father, that you would help us to live our life aware Um, of the spiritual realities that we face, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I had a witch knock on my door, and then a ghost, and then a clown, and then a skeleton. It was, of course, Halloween, Um, but no less, every time that doorbell went off, I was a little bit confused. Uh, I don't know if in your neighborhood, Halloween had the same uh, impact in ours. They timed it Somehow, the kids in our neighborhood knew that we had just put our kids to sleep. And uh, somehow, so they timed it. I was on the couch with Scout. Elizabeth was putting Poppy to bed. And they just timed it that every single time they knocked on the door, uh, that was what was happening. And as I was sitting there, I watched ten, pretty much 10 kids knock on our door, dressed up in the, this kind of supernatural sort of stuff, right? Witches and all that sort of stuff. And as I was sitting there, there were two thoughts that came to my mind. The first was... If you wake up our kids, you better know some spells, right? Because 
there's some hurt coming your way. No, I wouldn't hurt the kids in our neighborhood, just to be very clear about that. That was my first thought. But the second thought was, isn't this moment just crazy? Right, like, consider it for a moment, how our culture thinks about the supernatural. You know, whether it's the devil and demons and all that sort of stuff. Just consider this, because for, for the most of our year, we deny it, right? It's, it's almost taboo if we talk about the supernatural type of thing. You know, if you think about it, you know, the, the scary movies, The Exorcist and that sort of stuff, that's, that stuff most normal people ignore and reject and don't talk about. And if you get into that, you're abnormal, just to be clear about that. Um, then there's the scary stories that sometimes you tell that are super, have a supernatural lens to it. Or there's the videos, you know, online that you don't want to watch before you go to sleep. Or if you do watch it, then you just got to detox yourself with other lighter, mo- lighter videos. If you know the ones I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. For the most part, the supernatural, the devil, the demonic, this type of thing in our culture is taboo. It's something we don't talk about. And then for one night in the year... People forget that side of things, dress up as witches and ghosts and all that sort of stuff and knock on my door for some chocolate that I don't have. It's crazy. Now, I do think that there's a great opportunity with Halloween, but this is not the space for that. The moment that we're thinking of right now is just considering this reality that culturally, the supernatural, when people think about this stuff, I think you could, you could say safely that culturally we are a little bit confused. Right? Like, like, generally, how do people understand the devil and the demonic? We are a little bit confused. It, it is a confusing idea. And, and so what we wanted to do today is just spend a moment thinking about this, because we're up to the last line in the Lord's Prayer. This is the last line, if you've been with us on this journey or praying it. The line is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so it puts us right in this ballpark, the supernatural, the devil, demons, all that sort of stuff. And so since we are confused generally about this type of thing, what we want to do is just think about it. We want to ask some questions about it. We want to think about the idea, what does it mean for us to live in a world where there is demonic stuff happening? What does it mean for us to live in a world where supernatural things happen around us? And how do we live in this space? What does it mean practically for us as we consider this? This is where we're going today. This is what we're going to think about. This is the supernatural stuff we're going to think about. And as we do this, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4, what we had read out for us before. Now, if you've got your Bibles there, open them up today, although it will be on the screen behind me. But we're going to see two movements this morning, and the first is the reality that Jesus has won the war. Okay, so let's pick it up in chapter 4, which was read out for us before. But this is where Matthew writes. He says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Okay, so how do we live in a world where the supernatural is, where there is the the devil and the demonic? How do we live and function in this world? Well, the first thing we see is that Jesus has won the war, and, and, and this passage is going to show us that. Now, the context does matter here, uh, because as Ross mentioned, chapter 3 of Matthew is almost the preparation of Jesus. So, John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, and then Jesus gets baptized, and it's almost this announcement to the world that Jesus is here. Then chapter 5 is the moment where Jesus starts his ministry. So he's going to start teaching and preaching and healing and casting demons out. So chapter 3, preparation. Chapter 5 is the ministry. And then we've got chapter 4 right in the middle of those two things. And, And here it's this moment where God is leading Jesus to go and kind of deal with the devil. 
Right, you notice that in verse 1. Who leads Jesus to the wilderness? The Spirit of God leads Jesus to the wilderness. This is God's idea to go out to the wilderness and to deal with the devil. And so what we're going to have is this battle between God and the devil. Now, of course, we've got to, before we look at it, we've got to recognize what assumptions are we bringing to this text because sometimes when we think about this idea, God versus the devil, I mean, what do you think about that? You know, I think, again, culturally, and we're confused, but culturally, I think we often think that this is like an arm wrestle. You know, the, the God, goodness, versus the devil, evil, and who's going to win? There's this big battle that's going to take place. In fact, the thing that comes to my mind is down at Underwood Park, if you've ever been there, uh, just around the corner in Rochdale, down at Underwood Park, there's the Fishers of Men, the charity there that um, do stuff with the homeless. They're a Christian organization. Um, but what they have is they have a bus with a big picture of, of Jesus arm wrestling the devil. Now, this is not a, a comment on their theology, but what the impact of that picture does for me is it says, wow, God is arm wrestling the devil. Who's going to win this arm wrestle? And, and I think sometimes we think like that. We think that Jesus is a power of goodness and then the devil is the power of evil and who's going to win? Well, well, let's dig into it. Let's have a look. The, the Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness and then after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, the devil thinks my time is now and here he goes. He goes to fight. And the devil fights with temptation. And there's three temptations in this passage. The first is what we just had read out. The first temptation is verse 3. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, you know, you might not think that's a big temptation, but 40 days of not eating, he's pretty hungry. That's a big temptation. Second temptation, if you are the Son of God, verse 6, throw yourself down, because then God will command his angels to get you. Third temptation, if you bow down and worship me, in verse 8 and 9, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. The, the devil comes to Jesus in his moment after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and he gives him three temptations here. Now, we could spend a long time on these temptations, and, you know, it's worth thinking about this stuff. But at the heart of these temptations is kind of, the, there's the same thing going on for all three temptations, and at the heart of it, the devil is saying three things. The devil is saying to Jesus, it's harmless. I turn this stone into bread, it's harmless. The devil is saying to Jesus, there's a material benefit to be had here, a physical reward, you know, whether it's the bread or, or the angels coming to get you or, or, or the kingdoms of this world. It's harmless, it's physical, but, but to get there, you've got to stop trusting the Father. You know, you can see that in all three. That's kind of the thread that keeps them all together. It's, it's harmless, it's physical, but to get there, you've got to tr stop trusting the Father. There's spiritual consequences to this. And so this is what the devil does, right? This is his way of fighting this battle. He comes to Jesus and he tempts him. Now the question is, okay, so how is Jesus going to fight back? You know, if that's the first, you know, the, the, the arm swings one way, how is Jesus going to fight back? You know, you can almost sense the tension is building here as we're looking at this because we want good to beat evil, right? That's what we want. The tension is building here, but, but the truth is this, it's not just building. The tension is not just building because this is God versus the devil, the tension's building because we kind of know and we've seen this type of thing before. In fact, in the story of the Bible, this is not the first time we see something like this. In fact, if you think of the very first time we saw something like this, we watched humanity fall, right? I mean, if we go back to Genesis 3 and have a look at the very beginning of the Bible, what you see at the start of the Bible is you kind of get this moment. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And God has made the world good. Everything is good. And there's abundance in the garden. But God says, just don't eat from the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. 
you know, one rule, and that rule is saying, do you trust the Father? And then, and then we know the story, right? The devil rocks up. And in verse 3, takes the form of, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, takes the form of a serpent and then comes to tempt Eve. And I, I, I love this, right? Because when you think of Jesus' temptation, you see this with Eve, the devil's essentially whispering in her ear, it's harmless. It's a physical thing, right? There's physical benefit. But to get there, you've got to stop trusting the Father. There's going to be spiritual consequences. And if you know the story, you know how it unfolds. The devil comes to Eve and says, did God really say that you can't eat from this? Did God really say that, 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 that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then the woman changes the word of God a little bit. She says, we must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden and we must not touch it or we will die. And then the devil whispers, it's harmless. You'll certainly not die in verse 4. And then what happens? Well, verse 6 to 7, or verse 6, what we see is the woman sees the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and she ate it. Adam and Eve in that moment think it's harmless. They think it will be good for me to eat this fruit, but yet to get there, we've got to stop trusting the Father and there will be spiritual consequences. You know, we, we've kind of seen this play out before. And, and the, the truth is, in Genesis 3, what that shows us is that when the devil rocks up with temptation, it's never an easy thing to ignore that temptation. You know, I, I think we often do this, that we read in ourselves into that text and go, I wish I was in the garden, because if I was in the garden, I, I wouldn't have taken that fruit. You know, it's like we think that, right, as, as humans, that, that's our temptation to think I wouldn't have done that. But as if we wouldn't have done that. Right? We would have done that. We wouldn't have even needed the snake to do that. I think we would have done that just because God said not to do that. We just go, oh, there's a rule. I'm going to break it, right? This is in the human heart. This is what we do. So we would have done exactly the same thing as Adam and Eve did. And so that's what raises the tension then in Matthew 4, because you come back to Matthew 4 and you think, wow, the devil's rocked up to Jesus, and it's not just take the fruit. Now it's a little bit more than that. It's, it's, it's a stone to bread. It's, it's throw yourself off the temple for, and the angels will rescue. It's all the kingdoms of the world. And so how is how's Jesus going to fight back? How's he going to fight back? Is he going to be able to fight? Well, of course, this is what we see. Jesus, Jesus does something that no one else could do. You know, Adam and Eve couldn't do it. No human could do it. But Jesus fights back, and he fights back by using the word of God. So every temptation when the devil comes up, and, and have a look at this, every temptation, Jesus responds with the Bible. To the stone and the bread in verse 4, Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone. And in that moment, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He's saying there, you know, humans don't live because they eat. Humans live because God holds life and death. To, to the one of throwing yourself off the, the, the temple. Jesus responds in verse 7 with another word of God, with another uh, scripture from the Bible in Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 and says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, in the last one where he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down to me. Jesus says and quotes to him Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 and says to him, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus uses God's word properly. He doesn't misquote it or change it. He uses God's word. He fights back to the devil. And what we see is he, he wins, right? That's what happens. The devil will leave him, as we heard read out for us before, and then angels will come to him. And, and you get this moment where, where God wins. You know, evil doesn't win. God wins. Good wins. And, and so Jesus in Matthew 4 shows us that, you know, Jesus is pretty powerful and has power over the devil. 
But of course, there's a question that we've got to think about here, because this does sound good, doesn't it? Matthew 4 is good. But the question we must think about is, how does this show us that Jesus won the war? Right, because this just feels like a little bit of a temptation in Matthew 4. You know, a bit of an arm wrestle. This feels like one of those battles, back and forth, back and forth. And yes, Jesus gets the upper arm, but but how does this show us that Jesus won the war? Well, well, as we take a step back out of Matthew 4, what we see is this doesn't just point us back to Genesis 3, it also points us forward. You see, Matthew 4 points us back to Genesis 3, but in Genesis 3, when God is showing them what the consequences for sin are, there's this line in Genesis 3, and you can have a look for yourself, um, but God says to the serpent, one day someone will come who will crush the serpent's head. And in Genesis 3, from that moment on, you're looking in the Bible for the snake crusher. And yet every single person in the Old Testament, as they rise up, you think maybe this is the guy who's going to crush the serpent's head. But every time they rise up, they fall to temptation. Which is why Matthew 4 is so significant. Because when Matthew 4 happens, you think maybe this is the guy who's going to crush the serpent's head, and then he doesn't fall to temptation. And the, the truth is, Jesus is the snake crusher. And we see that in the rest of his life and ministry. You see, Matthew 4 points us back to Genesis 3, but it also points us forward to the cross. Because in a few chapters' time, what we're going to see is that Jesus will die on the cross. And in that moment, the death of Jesus looks like the almighty loss. It looks like Satan wins the war. But the cross was the moment where Jesus was undoing the curse. He was fixing the problem of sin. He was paying humanity's debt that we owed. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this, right? The debt that humanity owes against the living God is a debt that no human could pay. Jesus at the cross was paying that debt. But you see, there is something profound about the cross. Often we talk about the reality that the cross is this moment where humans can have a relationship with God, and it's true, right? The cross does that. But we have to see the cross is not simply about us and God. The cross is a cosmic victory over the powers of evil. And and Paul actually speaks about this. So so have a look at this. In Colossians, Paul references this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, where it says this. It says, He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailing it to the cross. So yes, the cross is the moment where God forgives us and we, we have this ability to have the relationship with God. But look at 15. It says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross was not simply a moment where humans could have a relationship with God, with God. The cross was the public and historical moment in history where God defeats the devil, where Jesus wins the war. There is no coming back from the cross. Jesus, at, at that moment in history, shows that he wins the war. He disarms the powers and the authorities. So when we're thinking about this reality of supernatural, the devil, demonic, all that sort of stuff, where we must begin is with the truth that Jesus wins the war. No matter where we go from that moment, we have to start with the truth that Jesus won the war. And if ever we're not sure about that, we just go back to the historical public moment of the cross. Because there, when Jesus died, he was defeating the enemy. Okay, so it starts with Jesus winning the war. But of course, that raises a question again for us, which is the question, okay, so what does it mean for us now then? 
Right? Because I think you might have a sense, if you've heard this before, there's a sense that that's not going to happen until we get to heaven. So, so how do we live in this earth now while we have the sense of the now but not yet? So Jesus has won the war, but we're still living now. We haven't experienced heaven in the true relationship with God yet. So how do we live now? Well, this is where we've got to look at another passage of the Bible in Ephesians chapter 6. So flick over there if you've got your Bibles there, or it'll be on the screen behind me as well. But in Ephesians chapter 6, what we see is that Paul writes to the church, encouraging them in how to live in light of the victory at the cross, and basically says this, we're called to fight the battle. So Jesus won the war, but we're called to fight the battle. Now what does that mean? Well, let's dig into Ephesians chapter 6. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, so, so what does it mean for us? Well, we're called to fight the battle. Now, there, I think there is a question, why do we have to fight the battle when the war's already been won? You know, why, why is that the call of our life? And how is that even possible that you've got to fight the battle when the war's been won? Well, a couple of illustrations. So if you're into history, you probably will correct me after the service because I've got this wrong, but there is an illustration that might help you with this. At the end of World War II, there was a moment, I think the date was the 6th of June, 1944, which was D-Day, I think. Right? It was a significant victory in World War II where basically that battle meant that the war was won for the Allies. However, the war did not finish. Germany did not surrender until the 5th of May or something like that the next year. Now, as I was reading this or thinking about this, there's some heads shaking in the, the room. It doesn't matter, right? I was reading about this, not interested in the dates, but interested. Not, I wasn't even interested in history, right? But I was fascinated by the fact that you could die in battle where basically your teams won. Right? I, I don't know, can you imagine that? Like you've been fighting in the war and then all of a sudden, you know, you die in battle, but your team basically wins. That's crazy. Or if that's completely wrong, that's fine. I'll give you another illustration. The second illustration is this. Uh, I was reading about this online, right? So, you know, try and prove me wrong with this one. Um, this illustration was from America. There was a guy gardening in the backyard and a rattlesnake came into his backyard and he chopped the head off the rattlesnake and then as he was cleaning up, the snake's head, despite being cut off, somehow bit him, and he nearly died. He went into hospital, and he nearly died, despite the fact that the snake's head had been cut off. Now, either illustration, take your pick which, which you like here, <laughs> this is what's happening, right? So the war has been won, the snake's head has been cut off, and yet, while we live in the now but not yet, there is a danger that we face. There is a possibility that the snake's head might still kill us, that, the, the, that we might die in battle. And so what we've got to see is we've got to have the eyes to see that, yes, Jesus has won the war, but yet we are fighting in a battle. You know, that's what Paul's saying here. Our battle is not flesh and blood. So if you go about in your life and you just think, Jesus, there's a lot on this week, what Paul's saying is, that's not just flesh and blood, that's the devil trying to distract you and tempt you to give up on trusting in God, whispering in your ear, it's, it's harmless. 
It's just a physical thing. But to get there, you've got to tr- stop trusting in the Father. There won't be spiritual consequences. And we've got to have eyes to see that we are actually in this battle. Now, why is it so important that we have eyes to see we're in the battle? Right? That's, that's the question. Why is it so important that we have eyes to see and recognize this? And I think what Paul's about to tell us is the reason we need to see that we're in a battle is because there is a difference between how we live in peace and how we might live in war. I mean, consider this. You know, we do have to slow down on this for a moment because, you know, you know your week, right? The week that you had this week. You know the things that, went, that happened in your week. If you think from last Monday to today, you know that. And you might describe your house as a war zone. But let's be real. Even if it was chaotic and the hardest week of your life, we're still living in peace. You could still get in your car and drive in peace. You know, like you, you got up this morning, you, you look nice, right? We dressed up this morning to come to church because we knew that there was peace here. But what would it look like if you went to bed tonight and woke up in the middle of Gaza? Would anything change? Of course it would, right? Like you're not, you're not getting dressed nicely to go to work. You're not driving thinking it's peacetime. If you woke up in the middle of Gaza, it would change everything for you. You would move into battle mentality where you would have a heightened sense of everything that you were doing. And can you just picture, I mean, some of those things, like what's that change in the mood of your house? What's that change for how you speak to the people around you? What does that change for your prayers? You know, like, if, you, if we woke up, if you, can, if you can use your imagination to picture that, what does that change for your prayers? There is a difference between peace and war. And we know that. Even if we've never experienced war, we know that. Now, this is why it matters when it comes to the spiritual realities we face. The dangerous place to be in is when we think that we're in peace. It's one of the most dangerous places to be. In fact, C.S. Lewis, um, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, has written a book called Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional book from an uncle demon to a nephew demon, basically to give Christians think, help Christians think through temptations. And in that book, he has this line that I've quoted before here at church. It's one of my favorites where he says this. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Now, what he's saying in this moment is, some of the devil's best work is not in the big things, but in the small things. Chipping away in our life, where we can basically live our whole life not considering or thinking that we are on a downward trajectory. A gentle slope is one where you are slowly going down. It's when we think we're in peace, when we're actually in war. Now, this is confronting for me, and I think confronting, it should be confronting for all of us, because if you consider this, I mean, when was the last time you woke up thinking, today is a spiritual battle? 
You know, like we, we wake up, and what are the things running through your head in the morning when you wake up? It's the drive to get out of the house. You know, if your house is chaotic, it's trying to maintain and wrangle the chaos so you can get out of your house. If your house is not chaotic, then you try and get as much sleep as you can until you have to get out of the house. And then you get out of the house, or you stay in the house. And if you're staying in the house and there's chaos there, then that's chaos. And if you get out of the house and you go to work or school or whatever it is out of the house, then there's people, and that, that can be at home too, but then, then people distract you and there's fires to put out and problems to deal with, and then you get home. And if it's chaos at home, well, then you wrangle that chaos until you go to sleep. And if there's not chaos at home, what do you think? You think, man, I really need to relax and rest and watch some stuff. And then you go to sleep. And what happens in your day in that moment? What happens? You go through a whole day without even considering that you are in a battle. And if it's easy to go one day, it's easy to go two days, and then the days add up, and then the weeks add up, and then the months add up, and then we've gone years without even considering that we are in a spiritual battle. And if we could have the eyes to see, we've noticed we've drifted down the hill, soft underfoot. One of the most dangerous places to be is to think that you're in peace when you're actually in war. And so Paul says in this passage, our battle is not flesh and blood. You know, you like to think that it's just what's going on in front of you. It's not just what's going on in front of you. There is more going on here. There is a spiritual reality that you need to see. And so if, if we can see that, if we can have eyes to see that we're actually in a battle, then what's that going to change for us? What does that look like for us then to live in, with, with battle mentality? Well, this is, this is actually where Paul goes. So have a look here because this is where Paul goes. He says in verse 13, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you know it's connecting. He's saying, therefore, since you've got this battle mentality, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then I'm throwing in verse 18 as well. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying, since you're in a battle, put on battle clothes. And the imagery he's using here is of the Roman guard. You know, if you can think 2,000 years ago, right, a Roman guard would not go into battle in their civilian clothes. This is the metaphor that he's drawing on here. Today, you know, again, if you think, if you woke up tomorrow in the middle of Gaza, you're not wearing the same clothes that you're wearing to church this morning. Somehow you try and grab, you know, a, a helmet, a bulletproof vest, shoes that you can run in, whatever it is, right? This is the, the idea that he's speaking about. Now, when I was a kid, I got confused by the metaphor because I thought, how do I put a belt on of truth and all that sort of stuff? But that's to misunderstand a metaphor, right? Because what, is, what Paul's essentially saying here is like in a physical battle, you wear physical clothes. In a spiritual battle, you must wear spiritual clothes. And what are those spiritual clothes? Now, the, the outcome of this is not that we would think about wearing these things, but actually just doing these things and growing in these things. 
And what's the spiritual armor? Well, this is what he speaks about. And there's seven things here that he speaks about. So let's just work through them quickly. Seven things. So you've got the belt of truth. This is the idea of growing in truth. And what is truth? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So to wear the belt of truth is to grow in your understanding of Jesus and your love for Jesus. The breastplate of righteousness. How do we wear that? Well, that's the understanding of how I'm made right before God. To be righteous is to be declared innocent in the courtroom of God. And so how are we righteous? We're righteous through what Jesus did at the cross. Not through my efforts, but through Christ alone. That's how we're righteous. So the more you rest in the righteousness of Jesus, the more that you use this as an armor to fight back. Uh, Feet were uh, fitted with readiness. Now this one's interesting because what he's doing here is he's drawing on an Old Testament imagery. How beautiful are the feet that spread the good news. That's the, the verse, kind of the idea that he's speaking of here. And I just think this is fascinating He's saying part of the armor to protect yourself from the evil one is actually speaking about your faith. We never think like that, but that's what he's getting at. That's the idea that he's getting at here. So the more we speak about our faith, the more we're able to wear an armor to protect ourselves. Uh, The fourth one, the shield of faith. Again, this is growing in our dependence on Christ, our trust in him. As we do that, we're able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Uh, The the fifth one, the helmet of salvation. Again, this is like the righteousness one, how we're right before God, how we're saved. The more we appreciate and understand that we're saved by Christ alone, not by my works, this is how we wear a helmet of salvation. The sixth one, now you see he's moving from defense to offense. The sixth one, take the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The way to fight back is through the Word of God. Now, we saw that with Jesus, did we not? That's how he fought his battle with the Word of God. And so the more we understand the Word of God and go deeper in the Word of God, the more we love it and memorize it and let it soak into our hearts, this is how we fight back. And then finally, the seventh thing, he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. It's almost like prayer is the thing that ties all of these things together. I can't help but, but think Paul had the Lord's Prayer in his mind you know, as he said this, but, but prayer ties these things together. It's the thing that carries us as we move. And as we grow in all of these things, and the seven things he speaks out there, as we grow in all of these things, this is the way that we fight back. This is the way we protect ourselves. This is the way we enter the battle. By growing in our faith, growing in our dependence on the truth, our love for Jesus, our reliance on the cross, all that sort of stuff. This is how we fight back. And we, we've got to fight back. We have to fight. Because yes, the war is over, But Jesus calls us to fight the battle so that we can stand firm in the middle of all this. So when it comes to the supernatural, this is where it starts. It starts by understanding Jesus is one and then recognizing that he calls us to fight the battle. Now, let's just spend a moment thinking about this for a moment and trying to apply this. Let's think about the idea of how does this play out in our life and what difference does this make for us as we think through this truth and and put this into reality. There's three things that we've got this morning to think about this and then we'll We'll pray and sing together. The first one is we've got to recognize where the devil fights. Okay, we've got to recognize this. So I don't know if you've heard this before, but there's been often over the years people have said, when you look to Africa and certain parts of Asia, or certain parts of Africa and certain parts of Asia, the devil's activity seems to be more public. Have you ever heard that, right? The idea of like witch doctors, the occult, that sort of stuff, right? It appears more public. And so, what people do is they draw the line and go, well, since the devil is more public in places like that, he's active over there, but he's not as active here in our culture. 
right? Because we don't have as much as that, uh, of that stuff publicly, right? But we have to recognize that just because the work of the devil and the demonic is different doesn't mean it's no less damaging. You know, I mean, you think of the whisper in Jesus' ear, in Adam and Eve's ear. You know, it was fruit with Adam and Eve. It, was, it started with bread with Jesus. It's essentially the whisper. It's harmless. It's a physical thing that has no spiritual consequences. And so we just have to recognize that the devil is fighting here in Australia. It's just different. You know, I mean, can you imagine for a moment that, like, this afternoon at Garden City, can you imagine if there was, like, public demonic activity? Right, like, in the middle of Garden City. I mean, consider it. We are a growingly secular society where people are anti-religion. The census data from 2016 to 2021 was more people had moved into the no-religion category. So the gods of our age are consumerism and comfort. People like to think that there is no religion, no God out there, so what if in the middle of Garden City, you know, someone started levitating? I think that would draw people to God. Right? Because they'll be like, what is this? No, Satan doesn't need to do that sort of stuff. And again, there's a line in the, the screw tape letters, actually around that quote, where he says, why use murder when cards will do the trick? You know, why use the big stuff when the small stuff will work? I don't think the devil and the demonic need to tempt us with the big stuff. They just need to, to put little things in front of us. Just whispers in our ear. And so what we, what we have to do is we have to have the battle mentality that he is at work here right now in our country. We've got to have this battle mentality because if, if we have the battle mentality, it's going to change the way we think about stuff. It's going to change my prayers. It's going to change your prayers. It's going to change the way we, we fight to read the Bible. It's going to change the way we fight to grow in our faith, all that stuff. We've got to recognize he is fighting right now, and we've got to recognize that. That's the first thing. Number two, so we don't just think about where the devil fights, but we think about how the devil fights. Again, the, the line from C.S. Lewis, why use murder when cards will do the trick? The devil in our society does not need to put big things in front of us. Sometimes that happens, and sometimes we've got to process the big stuff. But if you consider it, the things that are most damaging to our faith most often are the small things. I mean, this is true for me. You, you consider this. Um, if the armor of God, right, the armor of God is like truth and righteousness and, and, and salvation and, and faith and, and the Word of God, right? It's, and it's funny, to grow in all those things, it's actually not that hard. You know, you want to grow in your faith, you read the Bible. You want, to, you want to grow in your understanding of salvation, you come to church. You know, it's actually not that hard to grow in those things. So let's, let's think about this. What is it that stops us from growing in those things? What stops you from reading the Bible and praying? Is it the big things? Like, is it the trip to hospital? It's not the big stuff. Most often, sometimes it is, of course, but most often it's the small things. It's the distractions. It's the little whisper in our ear that if you, if you don't do that today, it's harmless. What stops you from attending church? Right, we're here this morning, but what stops you from being consistent here? Is it the big things in life? It's the, it's the small things, right? Right? What stops you from being in a growth group or being consistent at growth group? Is it the big life-changing things? It's often the small things. 
or, or it's the big thing we call busyness, which is the culmination of lots of small things. Do you see, our battle is not just flesh and blood. If we're stopping from growing in these things, it's not just because something else got in the way. The devil wants that for us. And so we've got to start to be aware that the small things, the whispers in our ear, it's harmless. It's a physical thing. But you've got to stop trusting the Father. We won't have spiritual consequences. We've we just got to recognize it always has spiritual consequences. So we've got to see where the devil fights, he fights here. We've got to see how the devil fights in often small ways. Last thing that we want to think about is, is this. So what do we do when we fall? Now, I think there's lots of practical things in terms of the armor of God to think about how we grow in our faith. And we could have ended on that, but I thought we'd go here because those practical things almost speak for themselves. But the challenge is, I think, particularly around this question. What do we do when we fall to temptation? This is worth thinking about because it's only Jesus who was the perfect human who never fell to temptation. For the rest of us, we are not Jesus. We fit in the category of Adam and Eve. And yes, in Christ, we have the power to overcome temptation, but the truth is we often fall to temptation. And I I love how Mez put it last week, right? He was speaking about this idea of it's a process. You know, you've got the power to overcome temptation, but it's a process, and it's not until the end of our life that often we realize that. So what do we do when we fall? This is actually something, if um, I can, I'd like to share a moment this week when this happened to me, and, and this is not because I want to share that. I just think that it's sometimes worth noting that the people on stage is like everyone else. And we've got, we've got to think about the practical outflowing of when we, when we fall, when we, when we stuff up, right? So this week, there was, um, there was a meeting, uh, that I was at, and then I uh, got home pretty late. And we, at the stage of our life, and I said that before, but we've got uh, a kind of scout. He's 12 weeks old, I think. And um, Elizabeth and I are working through the sleep deprivation of a newborn where we're trying to work through together and, and all that sort of stuff, right? And so uh, the way that we're doing it at the moment, and didn't work for our first one, so this is not advice on parenting, but we're just... We're just trying to give each other a bit of a break. And so um, I give Scout his last bottle of the night and then we swap, we tag team. And I got home late and I was sleep deprived, uh, sleep, um, t- I was deprived from sleep and I still am deprived from sleep. <laughs> and I got home late and then was cuddling him and then he woke up for his bottle and, and at that moment I'm starting to think bedtime soon. And that is the most dangerous place to be. And so I gave him his bottle and then... And then he had, and it's so small and it sounds so stupid, but then he had a burp and he couldn't get that out for 40 minutes. And it was so frustrating. And it got, it got to a point where I, I had to put him down and I like whispered, screamed, you know, those moments into my head. And I'm like, this is torture. <laughs> my God, I hate this. And I was like, I was angry. And then, if you've ever been in a moment like that, you get angry that you got angry. And then you're disappointed in yourself. And here I am with a like, crying kid, and I would do anything for sleep. And, and then, you know, pick him up, we start again. 
And like I started to, that, to just get in that feeling of like, man, I am a failure. This is not what I want to be as a parent. I want to be, I want to be the fruit of the Spirit. I want to be patient. I want to be gentle. I want to be kind. I want to be oozing that stuff. And so what, what do we do in those moments when we fall? Well, well, God was gracious because this passage was in my mind. And I began thinking about the armor of God, and I just began thinking about this reality that what Satan wants us to do is not just fall to temptation, but what Satan wants us to do is then run away from God. You know, like Adam and Eve in the garden hide ourselves from God. Because if we hide ourselves from God, in turn, our armor gets weaker. But if in those moments when we fall, we actually turn back to God, what happens is our armor strengthens. You know, I, I once heard it like this. Someone said, the sign of maturity is, is when you fall, you run to God and not away from Him. And I think there's something in that. And so that came to my mind in the middle of my despair, but then so did this. It's a, it's a song that we've often sung here at Southside from before the throne of God. And this is why singing matters, because it's in our moment of weakness that sometimes words don't, we don't remember our words, but we remember the songs that we've sung. And it was this line from before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. In our worst moments, Satan wants you to despair. Jesus invites you to come to the foot of the cross and look up and see our sinless Savior who died for us and who loves us. What do we do when we fall? If we run away from God, we are just doing what Satan wants and our armor is weakening, but we can run to our Savior. This is what we do. We run to Jesus. Now, as we finish up this morning, I hope that this journey in the Lord's Prayer has been one where you can see every single line of the Lord's Prayer is profound. It matters. It's important. And the power of this is if we're able to pray the Lord's Prayer consistently and constantly right throughout our life. God is going to use that prayer to help us to continue on the journey until we see Jesus face to face. So in a moment, we're going to sing the Lord's Prayer again. And we're going to sing the Lord's Prayer again because we're hoping that this song goes deep into our veins so that when we're at those moments where we don't have any words, we remember this song. Let's pray and then we'll do that. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we just thank you so much that our faith and trust and security is not in our efforts or our works, but it's in Christ and Him crucified. Jesus, the fact that you won the, the war is so good on a cosmic level, but it's so good on a personal level too. And so, Father, as we fight this battle, we pray for your grace and your mercy that you would transform us and change us and help us in the middle of the battle to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus 
when we're able to stand firm and when we fall. Help us look up to our Saviour who paid our debt and sets us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.